Is your family a success? Is there even a measure for family success? We think there is, and with a 20-year track record of success, we're going to show you how to bless your family with success in your health, relationships, and finances. I'm Steve Keen. And I'm Katie Keen. And along with some awesome guests, we are going to give you our secrets to family success. Welcome to Family Success Secrets. Welcome back this week, everybody. Today, we have Dr. Tanya Crombie. She is a best-selling author of Stop Worrying About Your Anxious Child and Stop Worrying About Your Anxious Teenager. She's a certified, certified life coach who likes nothing more than teaching parents and adults how to help children overcome struggles with stress and anxiety. She has a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology, and she has an MBA. But in addition to having these letters behind her name, she's also the mom of two teenagers who have struggled with stress, overwhelm, and anxiety. So her experience as a parent of anxious children informs all of the work she does as a coach, a speaker, and a writer. At the heart of everything is the desire to help people thrive in a high-pressure, stressful world in which we live. Her work has been featured in The Invisible Illness, P.S. I love you, be unique, and candor. You can find her on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. Tanya, it's so nice to have you here. Thank you for being with us today. It is so wonderful to be with you guys today. So we'd love to know your story. How did you get here to do all this work that you do with people, all these books that you've written, um, and how many you know people you've supported? How, how did you find a passion for this? Well, I think probably like most people, most of your listeners, uh, it was not as straightforward. Um, you know, I wasn't a little girl that said, when I grow up someday, I'm going to do this work. In fact, um, even as an adult, I don't know that I ever thought I'd be doing this work. I, uh, I, you said I have a doctorate in psychology, but it's in industrial psychology. So I worked in business. I worked in big corporate headquarters and doing management consulting. And then, um, as life often does, it kind of throws you a curveball. And I, I, in addition to that work, I also was a coach for many, many years. So I had been coaching adults for many, many years. And I found myself with, I have two children, both of whom have had struggles with anxiety, but one of my children really, really started struggling, having some real difficulties and, you know, I, one of the reasons why I, I wrote the book in the first place was because I thought it would be so important for people to hear that somebody who went to school and got a PhD and knew all about psychology really, really struggled to figure this out. And I am that person. I really struggled. I did not handle it well. I didn't know what was going on. And so it was in just my desire to do, do the best for my child, just like every parent out there, everybody who's listening knows exactly when your child is struggling, all you want to do is help them. And I didn't know how, and I had lots of education and training, and yet I did not know how to help my child. And I did a lot of different things that didn't work and finally found some things that did. And that is how I ended up doing this this work when I finally, through lots of trial and error and getting it wrong, mm -hmm. uh, found some things that worked and helped. I just wanted to, to share that and hopefully make it a little easier for someone else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at, at what age 
range-wise, would you say, uh, was where you started noticing problems with your kids? And then maybe, if you can, what type of stuff was it? So that listeners have an idea of, of what you're talking about, if they can correlate that to their own situation. Well, it's a, that's a, always such a good, a tricky question to answer to because hindsight is twenty twenty. So when did I know there was a problem is a very different answer to when were there signs that there was a problem? Because okay. I think the signs were there for a while, but um, they were subtle and they were easy to miss. And I think a lot of your listeners, some may be thinking to themselves right now, my child's really young. Is this something I should be concerned about? And so here are the things that in hindsight, before I ever said, hmm, maybe I should be doing something about this. What I did know, I would say from day one, day one about my, my child who had the, the more of the struggles, she mm-hmm. was, I called her um, my high, high, low, low baby. Mm-hmm. From the beginning, she was high highs and low lows. That's just how she worked. And she was also, I also called her my reactive baby because she was, she just reacted quickly. Like she went from zero to 60, you know, in 2.5 seconds, she was, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm so hungry. I'm melting down. I mean, that was as a baby. She was that kid or I'm so tired. I was fine. And now I'm so tired. I'm screaming. I, I need, you know, and, and in the beginning, I, she's my second. So I had already had one baby. So it wasn't like, oh, I, I thought I know what I'm doing. And then I was like, what is wrong with this baby? Why is she so upset? And then she'd fall asleep. I'd be like, oh my gosh, she was tired. But my other one hadn't been like that. So I was like, you know, let's try. I just try whatever. Oh, food. She needed food. Oh, she needed sleep. And so she always, even her skin, like she had sensitive skin. Like she just, this kid reacted to the world. The world uh, was like, she has, and I think I tell her that she's now 18 years old. She's about to go to college. And I have been telling her um, for, you know, many years now, you have to know how you work. You don't do well without lots of sleep. You don't do well. If you get hungry, you know, you need to pay attention to your signals. And when she was a baby, I had to learn how to pay attention to those signals. So this, she was this reactive kid who kind of things would set her off easily. And she was a very slow to warm to new situations and, and difficult to transition. So like if she was happily coloring and it was time to go, I was, it was going to be and all, you know, I read all the books, like to give them a five minute warning, give them a three minute. Yeah. It didn't matter. That did not help. It was still, you know, (laughs) there was still always going to be drama when it's like, we have to stop coloring. We have to go, we have to. And so I just kind of knew that was how she works. She doesn't like transition. She doesn't like change. She doesn't like newness, every new class, every new grade, we'd go through a big period of transition, every grade in elementary school. I thought, um, you know, maybe this year, maybe this year it's because she's going to be able, she's a little older. This is, and it, that is just her. It is her nature. You know, she was the, the stereotypical peel off your leg to go into, you know, kindergarten every. And so each year she'd be like, mommy, stay with me, stay with me. And like I said, every year I'd be like, okay, maybe in second grade, she won't want me to stay. Maybe in third grade, she won't want me to stay. (laughs) 
So we're, we're good now. She's about to go to college and she's not asking you to stay. <laughs> well, that's good. Cause I was thinking in college, you know, every, every semester you have five or six new classes, you're going from class to class, class throughout the course of the day. This is going to be quite the challenge. Yeah. She's gotten better. I, yeah. She started by the time, like I would say, 10th, 10th, 11th grade was when we started to really get used to that. But so there, those were those, like she was a nail biter. She would, um, she had little signs of this anxiety. And she also would come home from elementary school and melt down, melt down. And I just, again, I just thought she was like emotional thought she was just an emotional kid. And like, again, maybe she was really tired. That's what I usually chalked it up to. The school is a lot. She's tired. Um, but what it, why she was tired was because she was holding in her anxiety all day long. And she finally got home and just melted down. It was a lot of work for her to just manage her own emotions and all the stuff she was feeling. And I just didn't know that. So then when she hit puberty, we kind of had that perfect storm of puberty, we moved. Um, so not only did like all kids use typically around that age, you go from elementary school to middle school, which is a tough transition. And if you're a little anxious and you're going through puberty and your hormones are a little crazy and all of that stuff tends to make them kind of just volatile, emotionally volatile anyway, but we moved. And, and as I said, you know, I've got a kid who does not like change, who does not deal with change well. So we moved to a Completely, everything was new, new teachers, new school, new friends, new house, just everything. And it really, really threw her for a loop. And so that was sixth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade were, it kind of got increasingly worse over those years. So eighth grade was like a dumpster fire. So when you say, when did I know? Eighth grade, I knew. Eighth grade, I was like, we are in crisis. I'm talking to my pediatrician. I'm trying to get, figure out what is going on because something is really not right. This is not the child I've known all these years. Um, and that's, and then, you know, as you're processing what it is, it's obviously anxiety. There's obviously some issues that's when I started looking back and seeing all the signs in my young child and saying, well, that's what that was. That's why she didn't want to go to soccer. That's why she didn't like her new dance class. And it was, it's all clear in hindsight, but I didn't realize it at the time. Yeah. Wow. I was going to say that's, that's quite a lot to, to have to <laughs> process. And, and just thinking back, like you're absolutely right. The, the degree in industrial psychology and the corporate setting and whatnot wouldn't prepare you for any of that. So, you know, so uh, I think you get a full pardon. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. I think we all get a full pardon because, yeah. you know, you can read every book in the world, but when your child is in front of you and it, it is the most personal emotional thing you've ever had to deal with we don't see it as clearly anyway. It's not a textbook. It's not like, you know, this is our baby and we, we just love them so much that we can't be um, objective, really. Mm -hmm. So when you were looking back and you saw the signs from when she was really young, if somebody's listening and has, you know, a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, what would you say might have, if you'd known then what you know now, might have shown you that there was something you could do? I think looking at um, their struggles, looking at 
their, um, you know, what is it that is hard for them? And, and when they're verbal, I mean, when they're two and three, it's kind of hard, but at two and three, like I did have some clue about this is who my child is. And I think that's your first step is like, know your child doesn't transition well, know that your child has like, does not do well if they haven't napped or if they get hungry. And, and I did become that mom who had snacks in my purse and was, was always okay with saying, you know what, we've got to, we're going to have to leave the birthday party. And, and I think give yourself permission from an early age. If that's who your child is, you do what you need to do and don't feel like well, other people, other kids got to stay at the birthday party. Every kid's different and it's totally okay. If you need to leave the birthday party, leave the birthday party. Then as they get to be verbal, try to understand and you know, they're never going to say to you at, you know, six years old, mommy, I was feeling anxious at kindergarten today. You know, they don't say those words, but they will say, you know, like I make some kids it's, I couldn't, I couldn't sit still. I needed to move. I, I, I got in trouble because I kept moving and you kind of start like, well, what was it about not being able to sit still? And, you know, you start picking up on these because she would get in trouble for not sitting still. And a lot of times that is a sign that it's the anxiety that's making them wiggle and uncomfortable. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes that's a tricky thing because what looks like um, attention deficit or hyperactivity can actually be an anxious child who is having difficulty sitting still or focusing because they're feeling anxiety. So it's, you can't always just look at something on the surface and say, Oh, that's what that is. Even those tantrums, tantrums could be, could be a tantrum, could be a child who is experiencing fight, flight, or freeze response. And they are fight, they are fighting, you know, and that's a tantrum. Um, So I would, um, I would get them to, you know, just ask questions, dig a little deeper, observe a little more and pay attention to things that, that other children seem to do easily that maybe are more of a struggle for your child. Those are, uh, those are some of the red flags in hindsight for me that like, you know, the, the every single year, not being comfortable going into the classroom was kind of, was a sign that she was feeling anxious. And I just kind of took it as, oh, she's slow to warm up and this is her temperament, but it was more than that. Hmm. So once you hit those junior high years, did, did those signals shift or what, did it look like something completely different by the time that she was a bit older and you did start to figure it out? Um, it looked more like a, a, kind of a teenage or preteen version of the same thing. But, um, you know, what was like a little kid temper tantrum became a preteen temper tantrum. There was the screaming at you, the slamming of doors, the I hate you's, those kinds of things that are very typical of that age. Um, and it's, it's hard and shocking when it's your baby that does it. But you do have to remind yourself that, um, this is just that same tantrum. It's just the, the age appropriate version of that same tantrum. Mm. Uh, no, one guy who decided to take the door off of his kid's bedroom. So yeah, that's how, that. that's how he took care of that problem. <laughs> I threatened to do that so many times. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie to you. I used to say that all the time. If you slam that door again, I'm taking it, I'm taking it down. I never did, but yeah. i 
it is frustrating. <laughs> well, it's kind of funny because he was telling me that story that that he had done it, and at the time he also had a, a foreign exchange student living in his house. And the foreign exchange student said, "Yeah, my dad did that to me too." <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, it's a uh, it's the global response of dads who like I'm just going to take take away that opportunity. So. That's yeah, I, I was like, I'm going to record that in case I need it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's pretty good. So when the parent that's listening today says, oh, my goodness, I wonder if my kids thing is anxiety. Um, I know when you and I and Steve were chatting before, we talked about the fact that there can be gifts that come with anxiety. Absolutely. You know, we don't think of it as so negative. But will you talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Because. That is, that was my journey. It, it took me a while to get there because it, when it's bad, all you see is bad. You know, and that's where I was in this. This is a huge problem that I need to fix. And as I have now sort of gone through a longer term acknowledgement, I've kind of come back to that place where I started, which is this is my child. This is how she works. Um, and Look at all their things about my child in particular. And I guarantee you, if um, you're listening to this and thinking your child may have some struggles with anxiety, there are things about your child that are amazing gifts. And typically, unfortunately, with many amazing gifts comes a side effect that is a tendency to feel a little more anxiety. And I've just seen it so many times with my uh, even adult clients that I just have come to believe that it's a universal truth that people who have gifts in art and music and creativity often, not always, but often feel big emotions. And one of their big emotions is the anxiety. Um, People who are very attuned to their surroundings, very good at noticing everything that's going around them. Well, they pick up on anxiety and things, uh, signals around them that might make their brain say you're in danger more easily. And so they are tend to have a tendency to feel more anxiety than others. People who are very um, interpersonally aware, like really are good at noticing the feelings of other people and picking up on other people's emotions. Well, when they pick up on other people's emotions, that can make them feel anxious, especially. And this one is my daughter. I remember her telling me the story one time about sitting at the lunch table. I mean, this is classic middle school. So I think the middle school is the hard time. She's sitting at the lunch table. Her best friend didn't talk to her the whole lunch. And it was just so terrible, mommy. It was so bad. I know she's mad at me and not, you know, so she's kind of spiraling into a little bit of anxiety about my best friend didn't talk to me at lunch. Something's very wrong. I don't know what I've done. And, and, you know, she can kind of take this to a catastrophe level as most 13 year olds can. And, um, I realized then like she picks up on the the thing that that she knew her friend was upset about something. A lot of people don't. A lot of people are like, oh, she was quiet at lunch today, eat their sandwich and go along and have a great day. And I think that's that's also a nice gift. My child doesn't have that gift. She has the, I pick up on what everybody's feeling, whether they're saying it or not. And then I make up a story in my head about how it's about me. And that's where she had to learn like what what's going on isn't always about you. Don't make up the story that this is they're mad at me. She could have failed a test. 
Her mom could have yelled at her on the way to school. She could be punished. You know, they could have taken her phone away, which is the worst punishment to any 13 year old ever. So, yeah. So if you're, that's that gift of being interpersonally sensitive. It's a great gift, but she had to learn how to master the gift um, to be able to see it as a gift and not a curse really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was- interesting that you said that the people who are very creative have a tendency to feel that anxiety. I would have thought it would have been quite the opposite where they would be more easygoing creatively, but the person who is more of a, let's say, perfectionist might feel a lot of anxiety is, well, so uh, why is it that somebody who is creative would feel anxiety? Is it because they're trying to express something and it's not coming out right. It's, you know, if they're painting, it's not the vision they have in their mind, what they're seeing on the canvas, or if it's a a writer, you know, they're not able to convey in words what they're feeling. Um, Any idea? Yeah, that is definitely part of it. And the other part of it is the the, um, people who tend to be really gifted in those sorts of things tend to what makes their gifts so amazing is their propensity to feel deeply. They Mm -hmm. feel deep things and that's what fuels great writing or great painting or even, you know, singing, dancing, playing musical instruments. So people tend to feel a lot and people who feel a lot often feel anxiety as one of those, just the big emotions that they tend to feel. Mm -hmm. I see. All right. Thanks for that clarification. Yeah. Yeah. We have, we have a feeler in our family and I am also one. And so I understand so clearly what you say when you say you can feel what other people feel, it can become a burden. If you don't learn to set boundaries, boundaries for what you allow yourself to feel. And you're right about the mindset piece. You do have to learn that it's not about you. You need to be focused on the other person. If you are realizing that they're feeling something, it's extremely important. And, um, it's a really good thing, I think, for parents to hear and to understand. And I think, too, for parents to know not to get personally offended by their child's big feelings, because that can be an issue. And parents, I have noticed, can feel like a failure if they feel their kids' feelings are too big or almost it almost gives the parents anxiety if they think their kids' feelings are too big. I've seen that more than once. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um and you do feel, we also get into a, um, everybody, what is everybody else thinking right now? My kids having this, you know, meltdown in the grocery store because they're just a big expressive child. And right now they're really sad. And when they're sad, it's a big sad. And, but the parent is more concerned with everyone else. What is everybody else sees my kid melting down and they're judging me as a bad parent because my child's melting down instead of being like, I have a child who feels big feelings. They're feeling them right now in the grocery store and we're working on how to, you know, manage our big feelings, but it's not a reflection on you as a parent at all. No, it's an opportunity to be personally honest. I feel like it's a great opportunity and it can be a gift because you can help a child learn how to control their emotions, how to identify what they are, to know that feelings aren't bad. It's what you do with the feelings that can become a problem or a gift, you know, and it it can become an honor to help a child learn how to manage those feelings. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think for most people, most parents of my generation, I don't know that we were parented that way. So it is a, it's a skill we're developing along with our kids in all honesty. I know I was, I was learning about my own emotions as I was helping her learn about hers. And that was a gift. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and we see that a lot also in the special needs community because a lot of those children uh, exactly like you're talking about there in the grocery store, maybe having some, some problem. And it may not be one that's fueled by anxiety. It may be some other thing that they're trying to express or they may not even be capable of controlling it. It may be completely involuntary, unconscious and that kind of stuff. But as a parent, you have the same sort of reaction, right? Mm -hmm. Because that, that shrieking in the grocery store or in, in, in the church sanctuary or wherever at the graduation ceremony uh, (laughs) is creating the anxiety in the parent now, because the parents like I'm responsible for that and oh gracious alive. So uh, maybe what do parents do when they have that sort of feeling of anxiety, because that might be something that is out of their control, but there's probably something that they can do. Maybe it's just as simple as reminding themselves that this is going to pass. This is, this is only a few minutes or we can get out of here. Uh, anything like that, that you ever experienced um, perhaps with, with one of your kids or in somebody that you've been working with where the parent is now the one who's filled with the anxiety <laughs> because of what the child's behavior is in a public setting. Well, that takes us actually back to the question you asked me at the very beginning, which was, what are some things that you did? And I will tell you, that's exactly what I did was I, so, you know, my daughter is having real, real issues, as I said, real struggles and, and I was not handling it well. I was the parent you just described. I was so anxious. I was so reactive. I was a mess and it was impacting. I was, I was like, not the wife I wanted to be, not the spouse. I was grumpy with my husband all the time and I hated myself because of it. And I still was doing, you know, it was that bad cycle. Um, I was, I have another child who was complaining of like, you two are always, you know, yelling at each other in the car and I don't even want to ride in the car with you. And so then I'm like, okay, I'm failing my, both of my children, you know, my husband, if he, I don't know why he would even want to be around me at this point. (laughs) I am just a mess. And so I kind of had this, like, you know what? I got nothing to lose. I'm sort of at rock bottom. I have been coaching people for many, many years at this point to do certain things that I don't do myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't do any of them. And I'm just going to try to do a few of those things because I need, I'm, I'm, I'm desperate. It was sheer desperation. The fir- first thing I tried was meditating and I have tried meditating on and off probably for a decade. And I have a very, very strong story in my head at this point that I am not a meditator. 
Those are different kind of people. I'm not that kind of person. Meditators are like yoga teachers and they never lose their temper and they always have this soft, gentle voice and they're, they're just different. I'm intense and I'm type A. I went into business. I didn't go into like that kind of psychology because I'm like, you know, so I've got all this stuff in my head about why I cannot meditate. And I finally just was like, you know what? You got nothing to lose. You're not going to get any worse at it. So just sit there and be as bad as you need to be, but just sit here and set a timer. And if you think about what you're going to have for lunch, it's still better than nothing. So that I kind of took this, you're, you're not good at it. You're not going to get any worse and it can't hurt kind of mentality. And by doing that, I sort of released all of this idea I had about you have to be good. You have to do it right. You have to get an A, which is totally my approach to life is there's one right way to do things and I need to do it that right way. And when I was hit, it took hitting rock bottom to say, I can't do it right. Clearly I can't do it right. I will just be bad. And maybe, and something happened, like allowing myself to be bad was the secret to being better, to getting better and actually doing it. And I kept doing it and kept doing it and got little tiny bits better at just sitting and uh, paying attention to my breath and being a little more mindful and finding myself being a little more calm. And as I was a little more calm, I was better at handling my daughter and as I was better at handling my daughter, my daughter started to get better because mm. we were in a vicious, vicious cycle of her being anxious, which made me anxious, which made her more anxious. Because imagine a child who feels completely out of control and they look to the one person who they think, can you help me? And that person is completely out of control. It's terrifying for a child. <laughs> yeah. So she's like, I don't know what to do. And neither does my mom. <laughs> I have heard it said a triggered parent cannot support a triggered child. <laughs> yeah. And that's who I was. I, I am. I own it completely that that's exactly where I was. And I found this bizarre. That's what the book is really about is this paradoxical, surprising secret, which is if you start taking care of yourself, and, and I also had a story about that, about like, that's selfish, you know, that's bad parents focus on themselves. I'm a good parent. I'm going to focus completely on her and do everything for her and not take care of myself at all. And that was, again, it was the opposite was true. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And that's sometimes a very challenging thing for a parent to like you said, let go of the guilt and mm -hmm. I guess even find the time, the resources, but it really is true. The years that we spent doing some neurological um, developmental training, that was one of the first things they taught us. And they weren't the first people to say it either, but you have to put your own mask on first, you know, the oxygen mask in the airplane, you have to put yours on first before you can help somebody else. And that old saying, you can't pour from an empty cup. Yeah. And I've been teaching that I've been telling my clients that, and I just wasn't living it myself and yeah, little, little things. And that's the other um, thing that I did so wrong that I write about in my books is that I had, I always make everything too big. I always assume it has to be big. I've kind of got this all or nothing, like 
um, if I can't go run two miles, I'm not going to run at all because it's not worth it. I need to really. And so then you don't run at all. Or if I don't, if I can't meditate for an hour, like a Zen Buddhist, then I, you know, why do it at all? And I was like, five minutes, five minutes is so much better than nothing. Mm. Do five minutes, do five minutes badly, still better than nothing. Yes. So when we talked before, we discussed a bit about self-compassion and just how absolutely important that is to have in our life. I'd love to have you share a bit more about that. Yeah, it's, it's foundational. And I think I shared this with you guys, this study that I read that like changed my viewpoint. Like it's, it was just so shocking to me. And it was a study that was done on combat veterans and they were trying to um, determine what causes people to have PTSD. Can we predict who's going to be the most likely? Because obviously that's a significant issue with people who face combat. And so they did this study looking at people who had experienced real trauma and by being um, experiencing combat and who, what were the things that seemed to be predictive of who was going to then later suffer from PTSD. And they found that the ability to practice self-compassion predicted who would not suffer from PTSD better than combat experience. We would think the more combat experience that you're going to, you've been exposed to, the more trauma, the more likely you are to have PTSD. And they found that actually the way that we talk to ourselves is going to impact how we deal with trauma more than just being exposed to trauma. Uh, And that to me was just so, I mean, it was a mind blower for me because I never would have predicted that in a million years. And it just, it it says both about us as parents, because we're doing that. I I really did not have strong self-talk back in the day when I was going, all of my self-talk every night in bed was, you blew that again you lost your temper, you, you know, you're, you're making things worse, you know, so I was making things worse by saying these things to myself. And when I got better at just celebrating the tiniest little wins, the tiniest, tiniest wins, um, I had more wins, you know, you get, you get a little bit better about like, well, I, I handled that one situation pretty well. Good for you, girl. I meditated for six minutes today. Good for you, girl, you know, and just little things like being kind and celebrating the little things instead of constantly focusing on what I did wrong. And, you know, we all do things wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I like that, that you, that you were able to sort of diagnose yourself in that. <laughs> so is it just really that simple? The difference between having positive statements about yourself versus negative statements, or is there anything more to it that a person needs to do? You know, there's, there's always more, but I think the, if we try and say like, it's like, um, you know, it's like dieting, exercise, all of it. If I say, I want you to cut out all sugar and, you know, everything good in your life and just eat clean and healthy. That's just like, oh my gosh, it's so I can't do it. But if I say like, 
what I'd like you to do is maybe have one green vegetable, add a green vegetable every day. You're like, okay, that's so when we take something small and we do that one small thing, the other things always follow and that it's so yes, there are more things you can do, but I would start there and start so simple. Like I said, it's not even like, cause self-compassion people get on this, like, oh, so I've got to go spend the day at the spa and I've got to take a bubble bath and I've got to read a novel and no, just look for something you did good every single day. Look at something that you're proud of and it can be like, and I will tell you, these are some of mine. I'm not making these up. These are real ones. I got all the laundry done today. Everybody had dinner tonight. Uh, when it's really bad, no one got, no one had to go to the hospital today. <laughs> you know, those are like, you look for things like that. Like we all made it through and we're all in bed tonight and no one had to go to the hospital. Yay me. <laughs> Good day. You know, that's a success. Look for things that you can call a success and you will start seeing more and more successes. Everybody got to school on time. That's a huge one sometimes in my house, really. That is a huge one. I remember years and years ago, it had to have been probably eight years ago, we were talking with some mentors and she gave me such a brilliant piece of wisdom because I would go to bed every night looking at my to-do list. None of it was done, but I knew I had been on my feet all day. I was exhausted. I hadn't stopped, but yeah. I hadn't done what was on my list. And she said, Katie, why don't you stop making a to-do list and instead make a done list and only write down what you actually did today. And so I actually did that for a while. Do you remember that? And I was shocked at what I got done. And I could, I could finally see more clearly my efforts and it would be able, it enabled me to just feel successful at the end of the day, instead of that, like you said, that feeling of just utter failure when really as a, as a parent, we're all trying so hard. Right. And, and the other thing that your done list showed you is your values. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, like I said, if it was that my family had dinner together at a table, that is a huge success. And it's something I value so much, but I wasn't, I wasn't checking that off the list because I didn't clean the baseboards or whatever random thing I put on my to-do list that never gets done. <laughs> but I don't value it that much either. Not as much as dinner around the table. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a really good point about it. Clarifying what you truly value. That is a hundred percent accurate. It definitely, definitely did that. And it also showed me how unrealistic my expectations of myself were with the original to-do lists. You know, it did lead to more self-compassion for sure. Yeah. And even I'm thinking about all the times that we, our days get thrown off because we go into it saying today, I'm going to do these five things. And then you have a sick child or a child is like, can mom, can you please just take me to do this? And so you change directions and again, it was the right decision and it clarified your values were so clear and that, no, I didn't do this thing. I did this with my child that needed me today. And that was so much more important anyway. Yeah. Absolutely. I love the done list. Yeah. Isn't that cool? <laughs> it really did. It really did help make a shift with me. And uh, I love how you said, don't eat, basically, don't eat the whole elephant at once, you know, do little bits. We've had some conversations, even just baby steps. baby steps, 
little 1% shifts. You know, we've had some conversations um, just this week about, you know, how long it can seem like things take when you're really chasing a large goal. And I would think helping your child with anxiety, that's a large goal. Changing your own anxiety, that's a very large goal. But the tiny little things, they really do add up. Just Yeah. What I tell my clients uh, and I tell my college students this too, is life is a journey across the ocean. And so if you are going across the ocean and you make one degree change in your heading, the destination is dramatically different at the end of that ocean. But it feel it didn't feel like, you know, you didn't do this. You just went one tiny little shift, but it makes so, so much. So don't, I think we underestimate how significant those tiny shifts are, but they're huge over time. They're huge. Yep. And they can just give such rich rewards and um, they're worth it. And, and they can feel hard even when they're little, which is why it's good to try for a little one because <laughs> that'll be enough. Don't need to do a big one. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the thing we often also forget is our kids, you know, especially our teenagers, you know, mine was a teenager when we kind of started on this journey together. They are not listening to what you say, really. They are watching what you do. And so I, I do feel like the, the changes I made in what I was doing were so much more impactful to her than any amount of you should, because I did, that's how it started. You should go and get on the call map and you should do these things. And she wasn't listening to me. So I did the things yes. and did them for me. It just leads to my next question and something I'd love for everybody to listen to, because I know you mentioned already, you did spend some time set apart, quiet, you know, for you, you were meditating. Somebody could pray. Somebody could go outside and breathe. There are lots of ways you can set yourself aside, but like, what else did you do? How did you figure out what the tools were? I know you said you had been using some with clients for a long time. So for a mom or a dad, who's listening, going, I want to do that. I see, I see, I understand. Like, what did you do? How did you find the tools? How did you implement them besides in tiny increments so that someone could have a tangible uh, next step? Yeah. So um, in my book, I walk you through like about seven or eight different things and lots and lots of detail of things that I did. Since you just mentioned pray, it reminded me of one thing that I have my clients do that I, I did my, I literally did myself. Um, and it was, I started like assessing things like my worries. Cause like I said, I was in a deep, deep state of worry. And I kind of went through this process of saying like, who, where does the responsibility for this fall? Is this something that is my responsibility? Is this something that is totally my child's responsibility? Or is this something that's probably like, and if you believe in God, God, if you're, you know, a higher power. And I have, I have clients who don't have any spiritual belief at all. And I still say, you know, you, it's still not yours. <laughs> Find, you know, suspend disbelief and do this process, whether you believe it or not. But for me, it was, it was my God box, you know, write it on a sheet of paper and put it in the God box. And there's something about that physical action of when I say, this is not mine to fix. 
I can't control this. I am going to write it down physically and put it in a box physically with a top on it. Something psychologically helps. There's something about that act that makes you say, okay, it's not mine anymore. I'm taking it and putting the box. And then you go through the box and things get fixed. <laughs> you know, you go a month later and see like, what was I worried about? So, oh my gosh, that's not even a thing anymore. So it, it, there is something very um, cathartic about writing it and giving up responsibility for what's not yours. That's a really good tip. And interestingly, even uh, just in, in business, for example, making a brain map, um, writing, you know, writing down the, the who, the why, the when, the where, it is very valuable. And so in parenting with goals and letting what you can let go of, that seems so therapeutic. It's a really yeah. good suggestion. And I've had clients who had their, who like put the God box on the table and like their kitchen table and like made it a family practice that like, if they were talking about stuff, the kids would do it. So you can, you can make this as small or as big as you want it. It can be very personal or it can be a family activity, but it also is great to teach your kids about like whose responsibility who, who is, who is responsible for this? Is it you? Is it me? Is it neither one of us? Yeah, that is a really beautiful idea to do that with the whole family. I think that's so cool. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we talk about that kind of stuff with our kids already, but I've never thought about doing that in some kind of a physical, tangible way like that with the kids. And that's just brilliant. I love that. Yeah. I can't take credit for that. That was one of my clients, but I do. I love it too. Yeah. Wow. Gosh. So good. Yeah. Okay. So uh, as we come into the home stretch, we always like to ask our listeners uh, the last question, the signature question, if you will, uh, is, is there one thing, let's say, obviously there could be more than one, but yeah. something <laughs> from either your personal experience or your professional expertise, something that you want to leave the audience with, that would be something fairly easy for them to institute at home for a quick win success for their family? So probably one of the quickest, easiest wins, like we said, don't underestimate the small things. Um, and I would say regardless, whoever's listening, if you're listening and thinking, I don't think my child's anxious or I do think my child may be anxious, this works for whoever, whatever issue you might be struggling with, we all parents, myself included, spend a lot too much time doing what we've talked about earlier, which is that, um, you know, second guessing and beating ourselves up and just normalizing the struggle <laughs> saying, you know, this is normal. Everyone goes through it because uh, we do also tend to say, I'm the only one who everybody else, this is so easy for everyone else. And I'm the only one who's not getting this right. And I hope by hearing the conversation, it starts to become clear because I still have those moments. I still do that where I'm like, oh, my gosh, you you've had that problem, too. I thought I was the only one. <laughs> and just remind yourself, you're not alone. It is very normal. And um, you're doing better than you think you are. Try and try and remind yourself to do the the done list, like Katie said, or uh, find one success. And you really 
just celebrating your successes is, is, is one of those one degree shifts. Every single day, celebrate a success. Ask your kids to celebrate a success. What we look for is what we see. That's what I tell my kids too. So when we look for good things, we see more good things. When we look for how terrible we are, we'll definitely find them. That is an excellent tip. And I agree so wholeheartedly. Just a simple list of what makes you joyful can change everything. Yes. Yeah. So how can everyone find you? Because I would love for them to be able to know how to access you and your books, because I'm sure people are going to want to find you. Um, well, I am on guidance for the future is my website, guidanceforthefuture.com. Um, and I'm guidance for the future on Facebook. I am Tanya at guidance for the future. If you want to send me an email and ask questions or just say hi, or Tell me you read my book or anything like that. I would love to hear from any of your listeners. All right. Very good. Thank you so much. All right. That wraps it up, folks. Thank you. Uh, thank yeah. you for your time. Thanks for helping us out with a great podcast. This was awesome, Tanya. Thank you for spending your time with us. Thank you. I love talking with you both. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening and spending time with us today. If you know anyone who could benefit from this podcast, we would be honored if you would share it. Please rate, review, subscribe, and download. Head over to podcast.familysuccesssecrets.com to have a top-rated Family Success Secret sent straight to your inbox. We look forward to spending time with you again next week during our next episode. See you then. Bye, everyone.